Is the audio okay? Yeah, audio is good. So we're we're on. So um, Reese, hi. Good to good to see you. Good to meet. You. We've we've chatted a few times on on email. Um, you, you gave me a few pointers when I was doing a very very short section of the Wales coastline, whereas you did the whole thing, which was incredible. Um, but uh, yeah, could you just just tell us a, tell us about you? Uh, yes, uh, I am a 32 going on 33 year old from South Wales, uh, Penarth. I've uh, been running, doing these sort of things since 2010, I'd say, is when I really dipped my feet into it. And ever since, been giving myself two, maybe three personal challenges a year to sort of uh, test the boundaries, I guess you call it, and push the limits and sort of yeah, have an adventure. So what, what got you into that? Because ultra running is not the sort of thing that you sort of go, oh, I'm going to do very long distance things and endurance things. How, how, did, that, how did that come about? Um, it was a weird. I never expected it. Growing up, I never would have thought I'd be in this position running as much as I thought I'd be. Um, so, sorry, mate. Um, we may have to start again. Somebody's just walked in. Um, hello? Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Sorry, it's all right. Don't worry. It's Are fine. You something? No, it's, uh, I am, but yeah, it's okay. Sorry. Don't worry. No problem at all. <laughs> hey, start, I know just remember this is raw we don't have to cut anything out the, you know the postman <laughs> might turn up, really. we are in our area this is my neighbor hello, hello. you're, you're gonna you might be famous if this goes viral so um just oh, buy that wow. <laughs> <laughs> good morning that's fine mate, all right Sorry. don't worry it's fine <laughs> um, yeah we uh we get we get back east because they're renovating their house at the moment so um we've got a nice warm house for us Abby likes the warm and she doesn't like the cold, so she comes in now and again. Cool. Um, yeah, sorry about that, mate. <laughs> um, where do you want me to pick up from? So, yeah, no, you were telling us how, how you got into, how you really got into this. Yes, so never expected it growing up. I was always a team sports kind of person, played a lot of rugby football. And then I think 2007, 2008, I started doing half marathons and I met one of my best friends, uh, Rusty Tolliver, who actually got me into well, running. I obviously knew what running was, but never really enjoyed it. I just saw it as a way of keeping fit for team sports. And what we do, we worked at summer camp together and we get up at like 6am in the morning and go and run around the track. And the track was in the middle of like Pennsylvania, um, high up in the hills. You'd see like deer um, sort of, it would be misty, you know, the sun's trying to pop up. And it was just really ideal and sort of beautiful. And then I came back and realised how much a benefit that running had on my team sports. So like football, rugby, I was actually becoming a lot fitter. And then in 2010, literally jumped in at the deep end after running one full marathon and agreed to run across America with Rusty, uh, my brother Scott, and then two friends, Adam and John, who would crew us. Uh, we spent more time uh, running it than we did planning it, if that gives you an idea of what we, we actually did. We threw ourselves really in at the deep end, somehow managed to blag a, a real good sponsor. Uh, so Puma gave us a load of kit. Wow. Um, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. It was just a case of, I guess, sink or swim and see what the body was what capable of. We wanted an adventure. We were quite young. 
and lived from Motel to Motel every day. It was just, uh, it was a hell of an experience and where I sort of learned where I am a lot of my skills today. Yeah, wow. I mean, that, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a first kind of run, you know, long, long run. So what, what, kind of, what kind of mileage were you doing each day? How did you stagger it? So it was, um, we went into it quite naively. We were like, we're going to run a marathon a day. We're going to be able to maintain that until we get. So it was from Boston to Austin. So it wasn't, wasn't necessarily across America, but it was a good 2,000 miles uh, running down towards Texas. And it was a case of <clears throat> we get up and we'd run. Uh, we found out shortly, I don't know, four or five days in. Well, actually, the second day in, I woke up and I just remember sitting in a stand-up shower with my head in my hands thinking, what the hell have I got myself into? There's no way I'm going to be able to maintain this for another well, 69, 70 days. And what happened was our bodies just broke. They really did badly break. And we actually changed our approach in a way. So we were still covering a marathon distance a day, but we would run for seven days and take the eighth day off. So our weeks become eight days. And we always had that carrot of being able to have a rest day, which was absolutely vital in terms of being able to progress and move forward. And what we found out after the body had broke so much to a certain point, there was it couldn't really break much more. So it just started to see an upward trend. And by the end of it, I think the furthest that we ran in one day was like 61 miles. And we did that for fun because it was my dad's 61st birthday and we wanted to mark it with something substantial. So we went out and did it. It wasn't fun, don't get me wrong, and I'm not being like showing off or anything, but we did it because we just thought, well, what the heck, we're out here, let's give it a go, see if we can do it. And you know what, it was just, um, yeah, it was amazing to see how far we progressed. So from day one to, I don't know, maybe day 50, day 60, and our bodies were just, yeah, they turned into little little machines. We got our processes in place. We'd know when we'd break. Um, we'd start off, I don't know, when we started the whole trip, we were breaking every five miles. By the end of the trip, we, were, we weren't breaking for like, we'd run a half marathon and then break. It was just one of those really, uh, it was a cool journey. We managed to survive. And I don't know how we survived from some of the, the situations we went through. And it was it wasn't, pretty in some areas some of it was fantastic but some of it was just running along the side of a, a really busy road mm. terrible weather um, it, that's the stuff which people don't really see or focus on <laughs> yeah no no you're right and that that sort of you know the photos that you see are often you know beautiful sunsets beautiful scenery up on the top of a mountain or, or something something like that um and um Actually, we probably need more photos of the the real grime to, to really see what what that well, you can't know what it's like, but you can you can kind of see that it's probably not great fun running along a road where it's pouring with rain, freezing cold. You've got juggernauts kind of coming past and you know sending the water over. But so it sounds you like to... you know you got to a certain certain point where you know your your body's really adapted you you adapted to something you you were able to step up rather than the opposite happening yeah it was um i think like some of the injuries i had with shin splints and i appreciate people have probably had shin splints before um but I, I genuinely i had them really badly where my whole leg was just the same size as you could just look at it and it just looked like a block of wood um and it just felt like every step you took was like somebody ramming a knife into the side of your shin. I remember exactly where I was. I was just outside uh, Memphis, Tennessee, 
I was literally making my way along the roads and it was just like bang straight away it was there was no warning it was literally just like whack somebody's whacked something into my shin I thought I'd broken a bone or something at the time and just sort of panicked and just stopped in my tracks and had to just like reassess the situation um that was a miserable two week two weeks I'd say it was where I couldn't run but I couldn't stop because if I stopped then I would be falling behind the other two guys every day and there was only one support crew so I had no other option than to keep on going um and I did adapt I instead of running I'd wobble not wobble um <laughs> yeah probably wobbles in some areas I, I'd, I'd walk I'd get up two three hours maybe four hours before the rest of them and I just put my headphones in and I would just walk and then they'd catch me up maybe six seven hours into the day and then because I'd started four hours earlier we were actually finishing around the same time which was mentally it was quite good because we'd finish at the same time it was just that initial getting up in the morning um, and getting out the door before them which in a way was pretty cool because I spent a lot of time on my own during those two weeks um but I did learn a lot about my body as well like if you get shin splint you sort of overcompensate with the other leg and so on and such and I was wearing a deep vein thrombosis socks 2010 was yeah 10 years ago now and the, the technology wasn't exactly great for like compression socks and everything and we're in the middle of the middle of nowhere middle of nowhere America and I had to research what I could use and deep vein thrombosis socks, ones you'd use on a, an airplane. So I just popped those on and I, they genuinely helped. They helped fix my body as we went along and I sort of just adapted to that situation. And it was, yeah, it was nice. The day my body had recovered and I was able to run again was a really, for me, it was a really powerful moment because it meant that I've come through one of the worst injuries you could possibly get without breaking a bone or anything from running and I'd come out the other side of it feeling like okay or mentally I'm I'm in a good place right now and we can keep on going but yeah that trip there was a couple of days where you, you mentioned earlier about like the the lorries going past and pissing down rain um I think the worst days were when it was dry and you'd have the chicken the chicken vans going past you nice. so it would spit up chicken feathers and shit out of the vans at you and the smell was just literally so intoxicating it's absolutely foul and disgusting it'd make you wretch every time they went past and because we're in the middle of nowhere and we're sort of out in the sticks they were going past on a regular basis so you, you come up with ways to like wrap a scarf around your face or something like that just to try and stop it hitting your your, no your nose or your mouth it was um yeah little things like that which you, you look back on you're like those are difficult times and not necessarily what people think about. Yeah, yeah, that's not so glamorous, isn't it? Being covered in in um, feathers. <laughs> well, you know, one one time um, we were actually going down the road, and it was sort of the sun was setting, and um, a car drove past, and it, I think I was with Rusty at the time, and we just sort of put our heads up and looked, and the guy drove past with a scream mask on. He put a scream mask on. It was around Halloween time, so I don't know where he was. Obviously, off to a party or something. But he drove past really slowly, just looking out the window at us with this screen mask on. And we were like, that's a bit creepy. Um, and then 10 minutes later, he drove back the opposite way doing the same thing. He was obviously messing around with us. Um, but it's just, yeah, those little moments which you, you, you'd never expect in a million years. It, it probably doesn't take too much to mess with the mind of someone who's been going for, you know, days and days and days and days, weeks and weeks. 
it it really didn't um little things would it send us in a spin it would put you in a funk for the whole day and I mean it, it, the smallest of things like you, you could be expecting to I don't know get a certain drink from the shop but they don't have that drink you, you've set your mind on having that drink when you get to the shop and um, it's just not there and you, you're just disheartened it's something which is completely pointless and you know it's not going to affect you too badly but mentally you're just gutted because you really wanted a cherry coke um, I remember a couple of times where I saw Rusty lose his head completely and he, he took it out on a packet of Oreos, took the Oreos, threw them on the floor and just started stamping all over them at the sides of the road. And you're just going, this is bonkers. You just don't know. Like, and I don't even know what set him off. Um, what else happened? Like, technology. So your mobile phone, it, it became something which was very precious to you because it would hold your music. It would keep you in touch with people back home. You'd be able to check emails, social media, etc. And I remember a couple of days where our phones got trashed from just the rain coming down. And we were given these, uh, we thought they were running jackets. They weren't. They were sailing jackets. So you could just lock yourself up and you'd think you'd be completely dry. Wrong. Because if you lock yourself up, you'd be completely dry, but then you sweat. So then the sweat completely comes through the other side and you've soaked all of your technology. So if your phone went peak tong, you'd be absolutely livid. And I remember quite a few times where I was just so frustrated and you'd have to go to like a local Walmart or somewhere like that and pick up like a $20 phone just so you can keep in contact with people or have your music for the next day. Um, buying So back in those days, I don't think Spotify was around. So you'd have to like buy your music. So we would, um, you know, you buy albums on iTunes and then upload it to your, to your iPod or your mini iPod. And this sounds like, it wasn't it's just crazy to look back at it now and i've still got my um ipod shuffles from oh, back yeah. in the day and they still work yeah. it's fantastic yeah they've still got the old music from that trip on there i think it's just um i'd never let them go now and i, I do use them still so yeah yeah no that's a great that's a great little piece of kit actually you just sort of clip it on somewhere and uh, it would hold you know a few hundred songs or whatever um, yeah, yeah you know now what? think about it you, you've just got this this extended access into, you know, in, into cyber world of information and whatnot, which you take for granted, particularly with, you know, if you're navigating using, you know, your phone and your your watch. Um, oh, na navigation back then was just for us. We because we did we ran into that quite naively. We didn't really. We just thought, right, maps. The guys will our support crew will stop at the side of the road where we had to turn and that's how we dealt with it they were our navigation and if we saw them we'd take the turning where they told us to if not we'd just keep going straight and so many days you'd just be on the same road for the whole day it was um yeah navigation we didn't have anything off on our phones or actually did we, we maybe looked to like google maps or something like that if we did really get lost and we didn't see them or we start panicking i think the most difficult parts were the cities because it would be impossible for the crew to pull over at every turn because of traffic. Mm. Um, one of the days we went went through New York City, so you can imagine the levels of traffic. Mm. And we actually went, we made the point of going straight across um, Times Square. So, you know, there's no hope of finding our crew in that situation. So in Manhattan, we were left to our own devices just to make it across the city, which is worrying, but also quite exciting. Um, the night before, we'd been running together. Oh, over that sort of distance across a day, for example, you could run for eight, eight hours and you could only be a mile per hour different, but you'd be 
way down the road from because it was free runners there'd be massive gaps between us we were never all running together at certain points unless we made a, a conscious effort to do so and coming into new york city i think i was ahead of everybody else and we're going along one of the bridges and i'd lost sight of everybody behind me i didn't have my mobile phone on me um i didn't know where the crew were going to be i was just in that the runners high i was running into new york city across one of the bridge you got the big bright lights you're loving the situation and then I got to the end of the bridge and I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm a Welshman in the middle of New York City without a clue where I'm going to go or be. So I just double back to myself and double backtracked all the way till I saw one of the other guys because they had what I needed. They need, they knew where we were going to stop for the day. Yeah. It was, um, yeah. We're, I think we're blessed now with a lot of navigational tools. <laughs> I mean, the, the kit has become a, a pretty big thing now, hasn't it? Um, it's, it's become quite cool and trendy and there's a look and, and all this sort of, sort of stuff. And we've got some great apps and, and the coverage is obviously a lot, a lot better. So I suppose in some senses it's become, it's become easier compared to 10 years ago. Yeah, I'd say it's become easier. But then I guess I, I did sort of enjoy the fact that you didn't really have much like to me and, and I know a lot of people disagree with this but music is something I love to run with I don't run with it all the time and sometimes I will turn it off because I want to hear what's around me but then when I turn it back on you get an extra uplift because you haven't listened to the music for a few hours and um, it's something that helps pass the time with me so like podcasts and stuff like that um I prefer that over a navigational device weirdly um Saying that with the Wales Coastal Path, we did have quite a few navigational devices and my wife was um, literally following the whole thing and literally she dotted out every single part of it. It was just because it was roughly about 10 years from Boston to Austin to the Wales Coastal Path. It was crazy because Keris, my wife, spent two or three days plotting out the whole Wales Coastal Path. And I mean dot to dot to dot to dot, every turning and turning on the trail. And then thinking, right, OK, well, we've obviously progressed because we're actually planning it properly now versus what we did back in 2010. And we were just more focused on like, right, OK, shoes, uh, food and stuff like that, really, stuff which wasn't so important while it is in there. Yeah. So the so as the years have gone on, you've, you've put more into the into the planning, particularly those sort of solo, solo efforts. <laughs> um yes well i met keris my wife probably about what was it four years ago now you should i'm looking to reassurance <laughs> nearly five years now um <laughs> i feel bad um <laughs> you, you can't see the evils i'm getting now mate um <laughs> no and you know what she changed the way i look at running in terms of I've, i run still and run to my own sort of style but the whole planning side of things how important it is and how much easier it makes it when you're actually in the field doing it um and with the wales coastal path for example it was our first couple outing as a team and nobody else involved we had other people involved but day in day out it was me and her she was in charge of the planning all i had to do was run and you know what i think having her join or be part of my life is something which has helped my running massively because it helps guide me through like certain situations like pre-planning you know something which i probably wouldn't have done previously to that level of detail um she used to be a pa so she's very uh on point with information and stuff like that 
So yeah, that's really helped. From, from back from two, 2010, we were like, uh, I don't know, we were quite feral. We just go out and run. Now we're quite planned and sort of, yeah, go for our approach really. But but still a still a real sense of of adventure as well. Oh yeah, completely. It's you can plan as much as you want, but things will go wrong. Um, on the Wales coastal path, for example, you're going to get diversions uh, on, uh, on Boston to Austin, for example. You're going to have roads which are blocked or you're going to have uh, bridges which are closed. And then it makes a massive detour. Uh, one of the times you had to get a ferry across because there was no bridges. Uh, it was really, a, yeah, you, you adapt. I think that's one of the skills I've picked up over the years is the ability to adapt and not literally throw your toys out the pram or panic or go to the worst case scenario you just look for another alternative to get through and sometimes that's a diversion yeah i think adaptability is i mean it's it's super important for this kind of thing but i think it's also super important for for life that flexibility where, where do you think that comes from in in you because I, I don't think it's something that it doesn't just come because now you you know when you've been running long distances for a long time but where, where do you think that comes from um i don't know because i genuinely feel like ultra running has changed the way i look at life in terms of um issues you come across on your day-to-day -day basis and sort of the mindset behind it so i do credit I, I ultra running is one of those things i truly believe as you become older in life you become better and i think it's down to a number of things i, th I, I think just in normal day-to-day -day life you just put up with a lot you 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 can deal with a lot more shit and grit, basically, I like to say, where you just come across these things in life and then you can apply them to running or you come across them in running and you apply them to life. It's something which, it does work hand in hand for me. And it's something which, yeah, it's improved me as an individual. It's made me a better person, definitely. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. absolutely. Do, you, do you think that there are any other tools that, that you have or, or ways that you look at things that, that help you deal with you know the particularly the the stuff that that crops up that you're not expecting you know we you know you might start a run and think okay well there's going to be some stuff happens i don't like that i don't know um and that's fine because it's academic at that point but then it actually happens or something actually happens yeah so i, I can't pen carpent mentalize it is that the word is that the right term so you, you sort of dissection off into manageable chunks and that's something which I loved, not don't love to do, but it's something which I'm quite good at doing in terms of, <clears throat> let's take, for example, the Wales Coastal Path and looking at that as an 870 mile challenge. It was, yes, it was that, but in my head, it wasn't. It was a day-to-day -day process. It was a checkpoint to checkpoint process. So we broke that 870 miles down into 7.5 mile chunks, give or take, because there's not, the access points onto the path are not exactly precise, you know, so you have to be, work on the fly with that but it was a case of just going from checkpoint to checkpoint day to day and then you'd only focus on the final day when you're actually there and then you put all these miles behind you and then actually you've made up that bigger challenge it's something which even when you pick up injuries or i don't know you've gone the wrong way or something right okay you just try your best not to panic because if you panic it's going to make the situation a lot worse and i'm a true believer that my running goes off my heart rate so if I can keep my low, heart rate as low as possible, I'll become less stressed and my body's less stressed and burning less calories. I feel better for not being stressed. And then you just sort of, you just go at it again. Yeah. 
So you've got some ways of, of basically keeping yourself calm and, and having a sense of peace, if you like. Yeah, and there's situations where you, you feel uh, so uh, death alley over in America. Um, bad, what you know, there you go, you can see yeah. the cap, cap everywhere. Proudly. Um, Yes, proudly worn. It's something which I absolutely love. Badwater 135. It's something which uh, I've done five times. Uh, one time officially, but before I got into the race, I actually went over there four years in a row and ran the route myself because um, I wasn't sure if I'd ever get in the race. I also wanted to experience it and I wanted to prepare my body as good as possible for when, if I ever did get into the race. And you know what? Being in that heat... So the first year I went there, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was just like, oh, right. I, didn't, I thought the route was quite flat because it was going through a desert. No, no, no. You go up and down three mountain ranges. You know, you probably should have researched it a bit more. Um, but your initial reaction to that heat and going up, I don't know, a 16-mile climb, you, 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 you do just feel like you, you're going to panic. You feel like cause the heat is quite... Um, it takes over your body, it's zapping, it's very dry, and you, you try to breathe and it just goes straight into your throat and dries out your whole mouth. It takes a few miles to get used to that sort of feeling. It's almost like, it's not suffocating, but it's very uncomfortable. Like in, the, in Wales, we don't really have heat like that. Mm. I have a sore, so that's the closest I'll ever come to that training in that heat. And you can just open the door and walk out and the stress is off you. In that situation, when you're running 135 miles and it took me about 40 hours, you don't have a door you can exit through. Yes, you have your support vehicle, but that could be two or three miles up the road. And if you panic in that heat and your body just starts, you know, going crazy and you're two or three miles away from a checkpoint, you're in big trouble. So I think from my exposure in that race in particular, in that challenge, it's also helped me manage the cope of stressful situations because my life is at risk in that environment because of that heat and the stories of runners getting so it is one road the whole way but when people go off piste or they want to do a different route or something like that over in Death Valley National Park there's stories of people getting lost and sort of losing their mind due to the heat and situations like that and that's something which I never really want to be in in that environment because that could be really quite terrible for, for me my crew it'd be the end of the race etc it, it just wouldn't be a good situation so how, how was it different from, from the first time you went to... So the fifth time you ran it, was that the official one? Yes, so that was the fifth time. Um, and that is something which I spent four years, obviously, sort of prepping myself for. I'd been building my running CV for that situation to sort of be able, well, to, be able to get into the race in the first instance. And it's something which I was extremely proud of, getting into that field of athletes, because only 100 people get to do it a year. Um and I was one of those lucky souls or unlucky souls, if you want to call it. It was, it was my uh, my mountaintop. It was something which I was aiming for. And it took me 10 years, nine years to get into that race. Yeah. Um, that fifth year when I went over, it was it was really surreal because you've seen all these documentaries. You've been here before, but you've never had all these people around. You have not usually just got out of the car and you just start running. But when you do the race itself, they do the national anthem. You see all these runners here and they have free starting waves. And I was in the first wave of athletes. So when we started, um, you sort of find your groove, you shoot off. I think there's roughly about 30 people in each wave. And there's an hour and a half between each wave. And you're obviously passing people. And then after a couple of miles, you sort of find your rhythm. You find your, your, your place, in, place in the race. 
and you're running along and you can see the other athletes heading to the start line because they're driving past you. There's only one road out there and they're cheering you on out the window. You know, it, you feel like, all oh, right, I'm going to, you know, your pace wants to automatically go up, you get this runner's high. And then you just got to realise, actually, I'm only five miles into 135 mile journey. You should probably just calm down a little bit. There's something which caught me by surprise because <clears throat> the race starts at night time and something I'd never really thought about everybody wears blinky lights so they have their high reflective gear on and the cars are going past or they're stopping at the side of the road to look after their their runner and it's a sensation of just flashing lights for quite a few hours and it gave me like a massive headache just because those that, that those light sensors popping around in right in front of you or behind you or wherever you were there was no avoiding it and that was just one of the surprises which was different from the year before um with obviously when I've done it previous years I've never had runners around me I've had my brother my brother's running the route with me before he's a fantastic runner himself but you never had that level of um I'm a competitive person I want to sort of do as best as I can you see somebody in front of you and you're just like am I in the right situation to overtake them or should I just sit back am I going too fast You, you really do become a lot more tactical during the race and you have I think it was like 12 hours to get 50 miles into the race for the first cutoff time. And that cutoff time is halfway up a 16 mile climb called Towns Pass. And to get up there, the sun is just starting to rise. So the heat is, as soon as that sun hits the valley, the heat starts going through the roof. And you've been busting your balls all night long to sort of reach this uh, target. And then it's funny because the other waves of runners have started and then they're usually faster. So then you've all sort of congregate, con- congregate about 40 to 45 miles in this race and like, you've got these world-class athletes running past you and these legends that you've seen over the years you know like, I'm, I'm like, like this is a bit trippy and they're sort of going past and they're saying well don't keep on going and like the chap that ended run, winning the race like literally went past me like he was running a 5k I was there busting my balls I was just like oh my god that's the level of well, eventually he was going to win the race it was just bonkers and I remember at like 6am in the morning so there's only three towns on the whole route. Um, you've got Furnace Creek, you've got Stovepipe Wells, Panamint Spring, and then it finishes around Lone Pine. And there's not many opportunities for toilets, so you don't really have much of an option. You have to, they call them biffy bags, which you've, you've got to go to the side of the road and take care of your own um, shit, should we say. And, but I was lucky enough, there was a toilet within sight, like in the middle of, there's not many chances of this, and I was like, do I go for the toilet or do I keep on running to the next town? I was like, I'll take the toilet. So I went to the toilet about 6am in the morning, sitting down and something scurried across my feet. And I, I hate like creepy crawlies and stuff like that. Yeah. And I still had a headlamp on me. So I turned my head and there's a scorpion that had run across <laughs> the tip of my toe. I was just like, if I hadn't been sitting down doing what I was doing, I probably would have done it standing up because I was that petrified from it. I quickly sorted myself out and got going again. Um, but it was just, yeah, you see so much over there and like the sunrises and sunsets are just incredible. Like the mountains rip out of the ground, the heat. Yes. It's, it's, uh, it's a factor of it, but it's also quite, it's one of the appeals of the race for me because I want to test myself in these extreme conditions and people are like, well, do you want it to actually be hot over there? And yes, I do. I, I I'd love it to be the hottest it's ever been, to be honest. And I'd like to see myself deal with that. I think, Throughout the years, I think the hottest I've had it to was like 130, maybe something like that. 128, 130. 
um, which your mind, you can just feel, you can feel your head just pumping away and sort of, yeah, drying up. But it's, you're, you're literally it's, cooking, aren't you? You're literally cooking. And it, I've never experienced it. People say like your shoes melt at the side of the road, but I, I, I'm not a massive believer of that. I feel like if you're going to run 135 miles on a pair of shoes, they're going to wear down anyway. Yes, the road surface is hot. It's black. It's asphalt. Um, you do try to run on lines, the yellow lines of the road, because it does save a marginal bit of heat going to you. But imagine if you take your foot and you put it in an oven, because that's the surface of the road. That's the temperature. But you can fry an egg on that surface. Um, your feet are going to swell up, aren't they? Yeah. They're just going to swell up naturally. So that is what happens straight away. Your Achilles start really clench up and they get really tight. And your feet do tend to swell. So a little thing I do, I, I wear hokers. And I wear hokers because they're a lot thicker. And they, they it's only marginal, but they lift my foot away from the road surface just a little bit more. Um, and you also go for a point five of a size bigger shoe because you expect your feet to sort of expand as you're going through the race. So my feet haven't melted over there before, but you do sort of, you see other effects from the heat on the road surface. It's just that uh, you wouldn't lay down on the road surface, put it that way. Yeah. Otherwise you'd burn yourself. Oh, I mean, it's incredible. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's probably tempting to think, well, what, what was it, I'll ask you, what was it like when you, when you crossed the line? But, but, and I'm sure that felt great. And it'd be great to hear what you have to say, but, but there's also just these other momentous occasions on, on the journey. Yeah. What um, there are. There, there, because it's, I'll try and break the route up for you now off the top, tip of my, yeah, tip of my tongue. Um, so you start at Badwater Basin. It's 282 feet below sea level. And it's, well, it's the lowest point in, in that USA. And you look to your right and there's mountains ripping out the ground and some sadistic person has put a sign halfway up there showing you where the sea level is. <laughs> so you're already playing mind games with yourself. And then you've got the race director saying, try not to think about the 135 miles of scorching highway in front of you. Don't worry about that, guys. Try not to think about it. And you're just like, this is, this is funny. And then um, I think it's about 40 miles in is where you start hitting the first climb. So you've already put in a, an ultra marathon and then you start going uphill. And I think it's over towns pass. I think it's 5,000, maybe 6,000 feet you end up getting to the top. So that's one of the first monumental areas that you, you've gone past the first time station. So you're in the race. You still got, you're still above the cutoff times. And then it drops down. And at the top of towns pass, you can see where you're going to end up in about 20 miles time. And it's back up another hill, but you've got to go all the way back down to sea level. Um, or maybe it's about 1,000 feet, something like that. But usually it's called Panamint Valley. And every time I've gone through it, I've been lucky enough to see the jet fighters. And the jet fighters, you can hear them before you see them because it's in a valley and it echoes. And they just look like a car. That's how big the valley is. They just really, they're hard to spot. You can hear them, they're roaring. They scare the hell out of you. They're nowhere near you, obviously, but it does feel like that. You can feel the air just like vibrating. Um, it's quite a spectacle and you're running along and just like, wow, this is incredible. And the, the jet fighters shoot past. It's just uh, one of those things. And then you get to Panamint Springs. So I, I don't know if you've seen the images of the, of the lone runner running across the valley. It, it's that famous section of the race where you can just see the highway in front of you. It's boiling hot desert. The wind kicks up. So in Panamint Valley is where the wind really hits you. The heat takes over just from the time of day. It's usually the hottest part. You get to Panamint Springs 
and it's a bit of an oasis. They actually have a foot clinic in Panamint Springs where it's a, it's, a, it's a mobile one, but it's for the race, so they can take care of your feet if you're in that bad a state. It's really cool. Um, there's like a, a little bar so you can grab some a burger or pasta or whatever you want. It's really well, it's really cool. Nothing else there. Yeah. And I, I still don't recommend going to it. It's a beautiful little resort. Um, and then after that, you go up a climb called Father Crowley Pass. And I think that's about nine miles uphill again. So you're having another slog uphill. It's boiling hot. It's the hottest part of the race. You get to the top and then the race sort of plateaus. It plateaus for a good few miles. And I just remember during my race, that was one of the most surreal moments for me because the sun was beginning to set. Um, I got back into my running rhythm after going uphill and I was just enjoying it again. I was loving life. It was just felt like I hadn't run any miles. I was literally just gunning along enjoying the whole the race I felt like I was back in the race I'd gone through the hot parts so a weight on my shoulders had been lifted I knew I didn't have to deal with the heat much longer and the sun was setting you can see these little dots ahead of you and then you are literally just the, the sun disappears and then you're just greeted by like stars in the sky and like it's, it, there's no light pollution over there it's something which is just you see people out there in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere with their cameras taking photos of the sky and you completely understand why because it's, it's absolutely stunning mate I, genuinely if i wasn't running it you'd be staring at the sky all night long mm. um after that point it sort of drops a little bit so you get to the 100 mile part um 100 mile marker and you go past the town i think it was about 90 miles in called darwin um, if you get a chance go onto youtube and type in darwin it's fantastic there's like a 20 minute 30 minute documentary on this little town in the middle of death valley okay. where not a lot of people go anymore and these people have moved there to just get off 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 the beaten track it's just um you don't go through it but you go past the turning to it it's just um yeah have a little look at that it's a really cool documentary you get an idea of what death valley is all about in terms of like how hot it is um after that you drop down a little bit to the 100 mile mark which is in Keeler which is nothing else there. After Keeler, it's just plateaus again. And then you get to Lone Pine, which is about 122 miles in. And they're like, right, okay, well, this is not the end of the race. You go up, um, I think it's about 8,000 feet, you end up finishing up. 13 miles uphill. It's just an absolute, yeah, it's an absolute slog until you get to the finish line. But you, you, you do these switchbacks, and I think it's about two or three miles of switchbacks. And then you turn a corner but before you turn the corner you can look left and you can see death valley you can see the heat coming out of it it's just um, spectacular turn the corner and you're just greeted by this like wonderful oasis of like forestry trees rivers lakes you've been going through the desert for so long that you forget what this stuff is like and it's just so refreshing on the senses to see it and then you, you, you cross the finish line and it was the most complete I'd ever felt during an event for sure it was it had been for me a nine-year journey it was just elation it, part of me didn't want it to finish because I knew that was sort of the end of the race it was part of end of that part of the journey but then as soon as I finished I knew I'd be going back again I, I if I was lucky enough I'd always accept the invite to go back because it, it is my favorite race it's it's one of the toughest races out there and for some reason I love Death Valley yeah well yeah absolutely i mean you can hear the passion in, in your voice and and i i noticed a, a picture you got the of course the welsh flag and um you, you're a proud welshman and um and and the first i understand the first welshman to have achieved such a feat yeah i, I, I sort of yeah i i didn't 
I knew before the race that I'd be the first Welshman, but it was never like, that was never my, I just wanted to do the race. So if another Welshman had done it, it wicked because I can follow in their footsteps. Um, but yeah, that little cherry on top was really, um, it was cool. I've written myself into Badwater history for becoming the first ever Welshman. Um, but it's, for me, it's not, it's not over. It's something which I want to build a legacy in. It's something which I'd love to do 10 times. And I mean, 10 times officially. So all being well and if I can get back into the race again and I will keep on going until yeah I can reach my legacy of 10 years I'd love to do that oh I got back in well I was supposed to run it this year but obviously due to everything that's going on it got cancelled but next year we've been giving our spaces back into that race so I, I know for next year I'm going back into it which is weird having so much prep time because it means I can really focus on the certain things where I, I think I I suck at really and something I'm really terrible at is eating and that could be not even in like um, not even just over there just in normal races over here as well my nutrition is something which I've really tried to work on over the last couple of years because if you don't get enough calories in you, you are going to bonk and you're going to end up falling out of a race over there or any race in particular I've DNF'd a couple of races over here from just lack of nutrition really and not taking care of myself so what, what, what happens there then? Because, you know, the, you know, e- eating and, and ultra running are almost synonymous and some people do it, you know, more leisurely, let's say, just call it a, a sort of an eating fest. You know, I'm going out running for the day, but I'm mainly eating. Um, yeah. How, 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 how did that come about? Um, I'm not entirely sure, mate. So I remember running a 40 miler with two of my friends, Steve and Lawrence, and they picked me up at like 4am in the morning. It was up in Brecon. So it was like middle of winter. It was really disgusting weather. And they were just sort of talking about what food they had for the day. And I just sort of laughed and went, oh, I haven't really got anything. And <laughs> whoops. So we, we stopped at um, a garage. And I think I grabbed like a four pack of Snickers and then a monster. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just take that and it'll all be good. And I remember running that race and it was just horrific because the weather was coming in and all I'd had all day for 40 miles was like these snicker bars and you're just sick of them, you're sick of the sight of it. And I think there must have been about, what, less than a thousand calories in those four bars. Um, so I did 40 miles off a thousand calories. It was just something which, that was for me, it was like, you're an idiot. I don't know why I ever did that. And now like when I run 100 mile plus races, it's something which I have to rip, I, I'm not one of those people, like you said, that leisurely eats and puts your hand in your pocket and, you know, little and often. I do that with drinking. So drinking, I'm like a fish. I literally just take it on all day long. Food-wise, I find it hard to digest while running. Uh-huh. Um, don't really want to be caught out in the middle of well, nowhere as well. But something which we have found out from the Wales Coastal Path is I'm good at running starved in the morning. Mm. So what we did, we'd end up starting, I don't know, 8 a.m. in the morning. I wouldn't eat breakfast. I would literally run for maybe 20 miles. And then when I got to that 20-mile point, I'd be really hungry and ravenous. So then we'd cram all the food in at that point when I was really hungry and I wanted the food. And then that would see me over for the next section. And then you just work it with that. And it's that wouldn't work for everybody. But the way I train, I usually go out on an empty stomach. And it's just from from choice lifestyle I guess I'm used to running starved so it was something which we've applied to that challenge in particular and it's something I'll be adding now into any of the races that I go further forward I won't eat too much before the race and then we'll just literally run starved and then when I get hungry 
or you know not in a bad place and will put up those calories back inside myself mm-hmm. and try taking on um, liquid fuel so yeah, I said I'm like a fish a drinking stuff so we'll make sure there's a lot of calories in the drinks I'm taking on so I, I drink a lot of um, hammer fuel it's uh, it's got like all the calories you need and it's got carbohydrates so I know I'm getting a certain calorie intake from each drink that I have from now that from those guys and that seems to fill the void and I, I don't tend to bonk now because that is my meal supplement in between the real meals if that makes sense yeah yeah no 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 absolutely absolutely and so you know you've gone from snickers to something that's you know <laughs> you you found your way and i think that that's it isn't it everyone seems to find their own way through a bit of experimentation what works what doesn't is it sort of the the gels and that type of thing through to normal food you know bagels and um you know whatever whatever works I- the normal food thing, which I, I think is massive, I, I, I'm not a massive fan of gels. Uh, I just think they go straight through me. Um, obviously, different things with different people, but they, they're just full of sugar and cattle race. So you're not going to be able to survive off stuff like that. You need real food. Um, something I'm good at eating is fruit, which is quite is okay. Um, it's not hugely calorific, but like blueberries or bananas or like... Um, pineapple pomegranate stuff like that I, I love eating especially in the heat of that valley uh, the, the biggest issue is trying to keep it cool in a in an ice box um there is a there is a video out there of me when i did one of the solo crossings so it wasn't the race but before we went into death valley for one of the solo crossings there's a video of me going into mcdonald's um and ordering 16 double cheeseburgers um, and that was my race nutrition for that for that crossing um people are like what the hell you're an idiot why would you do that but they've they got loads of calories in i like them they're easy to like to eat for me when i'm hungry i'll just put one back and they last so you forget it's quite hard to keep foods in death valley and those things could survive an atomic bomb like a nuclear bomb they, they, they seriously like they, we found them two or three days later down the side of like the car panel and mm. embarrassingly i may have eaten one or two <laughs> after those days. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if their survivability is a good thing or not. Um, when you think about when it's inside you, um, but but yeah, no, you you found something, you know, you've, in the in the short term um, that that delivers. There was um, the, the the trigger for for contacting you again was was a picture I saw on on Instagram. You post some great photos, um, and and you mentioned the pain cave, and obviously the pain is something that's that's close to my part for different reasons and um i just wondered what what the pain cave meant to you can i just i need to put my laptop on charge give me one second yeah no worries There you go. You're not going to lose me now. That's nice and charged. Um, pain cave to me. Yeah. So that post I think you're referring to is the one when I'm in the uh, the support vehicle looking like I don't really know what day of the week it is. Um, yeah, that came, was it day 12, I think, day 13 on the Wales coastal path. And I guess the pain cave to me is to be expected from each challenge. And if, if you don't 
really get go into the pain cave for me then you know maybe not working hard enough it's one of those things where for me it's expected when day day 12 day 13 came along it had been bigged up because we knew the section would be Pembrokeshire coastal path we knew it would be one of the toughest days it would be one of the bumpiest the weather wasn't going to be pleasant uh we were just sort of holding on by the skin of our teeth really to like the record time and everything but to me the pain cave is just you sort of like I said it's expected when it does arrive you're already in it before you realize you're in it if that makes sense in a weird way things go from bad to worse and sort of when you acknowledge it and you realize you're in that bad situation then you can start working towards getting out of that and I do have a number of like coping mechanisms so I listen to a lot of music I do have a certain tracks that I listen to when sort of shit hits the fan if you want to call it like that um if I'm running with somebody um I just go into my shell so I don't really say a lot I will just grunt or smile um, especially on this trip, I sort of perfected that technique and, and I'd let people talk at me and I let people talk at me because it's a welcome distraction because I don't have to hold the conversation. They can tell me about their life. Um, mine's been the same for like the 12, last 12, 13 days, you know, nothing, not a lot has changed, but to hear other people talk their story or see two new strangers make a connection and start talking, it's a nice little distraction. But then you also think about the reason you're out there so your reason why and for me I had like two I had three reasons why actually why I, why I was doing the Wales Coastal Path and why I was running for charity and something that I always do with every challenge I do I connect it to a charity and that I guess in a way is a selfish reason because it also gives me a reason to not give up so when I do enter the pain cave you have this reason to think about you, these people to think about, these charities to think about, just to take another step forward or to just give it another mile, give it another hour. And then before you knew it, you're sort of coming out the other side of the pain cave. And with the Wales Coastal Path in particular, I had three reasons why. And they were three charities. So it was the CF Warriors, which is a cystic fibrosis charity, the NSPCC, which is obviously a children's charity, and uh, Maggie's Cardiff, which is a cancer charity. And I picked each of those charities for a person in my life. Um, cystic fibrosis charity, so CF Warriors, one of my best friends, Josh, who actually set the charity up himself. And he's sort of building a legacy through that. And with cystic fibrosis, it's quite a lonely disease. And he's bringing all these people together. And the idea is to get kids with CF into exercise to help them. It's fantastic charity. And then we had Maggie's Cardiff which is a cancer charity, and that was my mum, who I asked who she wanted me to fundraise for. She went through breast cancer a couple of years ago, and she came out the other side, and she was 100% down for Maggie's. And then the third one, which is extremely close to my heart as well, is the NSPCC, and that was my wife, Karis, who as a child was abused by a horrible person. And it's something which we try to support every year through anything that we do. So you imagine if you take those three reasons why and you sort of you crisscross it over, you build that extra layer over you as well. When you come into the pain cave, you can peel them back. In my head, this is what I'm doing. I'm peeling them back and I'm thinking about each layer as I go through it. And it tends to work more often than not. You've got to have a good reason why. Like my reason why is better than the reason for giving up. And that's my simple approach to the pain cave. 
and it, it does help when you get certain messages from people as well so you get friends that are dropping you a message you get your running heroes yeah. so I had a, a chap called Marshall Ulrich who is my running hero he's run Badwater 30 times he's run that route 30 times he's an animal unbelievable guy he sent me a video like just saying keep going and good luck and um, had Matthew Pritchard send me videos it's fantastic my buddy Hugh sent me videos it's um you sort of then also something you, that brings to your attention is the amount of people that are behind you and the amount of people that are willing you forward like those very rare moments on that path where I was alone uh, there, there were a couple of days where I had to do it solo and you know what that was quite refreshing but more often than not I had somebody running with me and it wasn't something which was completely pre-planned it was just off the cuff people messaging like where are you we're going to come out and run some miles with you and it was cool because you'd see other people putting their bodies on the line for you to just keep moving you forward they'd be guiding you up these steep inclines getting you down these narrow paths they'd be opening the gates for you they'd be reading the directions off just giving you that little extra percentage of getting through that day and when you sort of take a step back and look at all the efforts of the other people that were behind me it was just inspirational really and it's just like a massive driving force and something for me was um I so the the, co the record holder before me was James Harkin and he went from south to north and something I did, I flipped it on his head and I went from north to south. And the reason I mainly did that is because I'd be running home. And there is a massive, uh, for me, a magnet for running home. It will keep you going. And I knew if I could get into the Vale of Glamorgan with a sort of, sort of a, a shot at the record, other things would take over. Like um, just the buzz of getting close to your home county, getting close to your hometown. So I'd be running through the place where I grew up, Penarth. Um, and you got your friends and your family coming out. And like on that day when we crossed into the Vale, I think I had about 15, maybe 20 runners running with me throughout the day. It was just absolutely bonkers. But it was like, that was my extra kicker. That was my, um, my, my secret sauce, whatever you want to call it. It was that thing which I knew would give me that extra kick then to come through Penarth, through Cardiff, and then on my way to Chapstone. So those, those connections give you real energy. Those connections yeah. with those people, you know, Keris, your your family, friends, heroes, people you don't know who just say, Yeah, come on. Yeah, and they're sort of all working in the in the same direction as you. They may not be there with you at the time, but for me, another massive draw was um, it was mine and Keris's first ever challenge properly together by ourselves, was seeing her every 7.5 miles because she she never really comes to the Death Alley or Badwater, so I won't see her over there. Um but to see her on this path was always like a nice little carrot every 7.5 miles because I get to see her. It's not like you're being pulled apart. We're actually coming close together. And by the end of it, we were a well-knit team where it was just like she knew exactly how to deal with me. Like I had a couple of, let's call them diva tantrums, should we say? It was like my mindset by the last couple of days was it was childlike. I genuinely, looking back and there's a couple of clips from the trip, I, I I just looking at myself like I just really don't understand what I must have been thinking at that time and it was just little things which would kick me off it was just unbelievable but there's a, there, there is a clip of me just throwing my toys out of the pram and the Keris is there throwing the toys back in the pram like giving me re like I'm pu pu picking up an issue and she's just putting it out straight away before it becomes a fire it's um pretty impressive it was uh yeah it was a my, it, my name's on the record but it's definitely both our records because i wouldn't have been able to do it without her 
Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, it's it's very clear how it's you know deepened your relationship through understanding each other and and being there and and being able to predict you know what what's needed. Um, we were talking earlier about you know the the irrational side that that can come out. Absolutely, you don't want to have to make even small decisions. Just just put it there. I, you know, don't don't ask me about it. Um, there was um, I think it was it the second to last day. Second to last, no, third to last day. So just around by Swansea area, I got into the checkpoint and it would be a, it'd been a slow morning. I mean, really slow morning. Um, and my head had been really messed with. Um, we'd be running across the beach and there's loads of people on the beach, but there was loads of um, sea mist on the beach. So like, you can't really see where you're going. You're trying to dodge all these people. And then you're like, why are people sunbathing in the sea mist? I don't, I'm not, I don't know anything about that. But to me, I was like, if I, like, have I died or what, what is it? What's this situation <laughs> going through? And then you're like, oh, no, I'm still alive. My ankle is still really buggered. Um, I got into the checkpoint and the guys, it had been so slow that they, uh, they, they looked at the plan that we'd had and they were just like, well, we need to change your plan. And, and you're running yourself. And when somebody takes your plan and rips it up in front of your face, um, it's quite demoralizing, it's worrying, it puts you into a panic. And I'm there just, I'm trying to count in my head, you automatically try to go back to the maths and you, you think, right, okay, have I got a feasible chance of still making this record? Yes, I do, I, I don't understand why you're changing my, my approach. And Keris is there sort of like thinking, well, this is not good because you're getting in his head now, you're messing with his head, we're changing the plan. And the plan was, right, okay, you may have to, um, run all the way through so from Swansea to the finish I think still like 100 125 maybe 130 miles and they're saying you're gonna have to run all the way through and then they're going right well I've still got two two and a half days left for me that's 50 miles a day with a 30 mile on the last day so feasible I don't know why we're changing the plan but obviously I wasn't really thinking right at the time so I'm then starting to doubt myself but I, I just remember Keris kicked everybody out of the van and sort of just went right okay let's just take five minutes. These are your options. Um, I'm going to speak to your coach because your coach is the one that's helped you bring together this plan. And we'll just check it with him and see what happens. And by the time I got to the next checkpoint, everybody had come back to my plan and the plan was still the same. We weren't going to change it. And I was in a great mood because of that. But those 10 miles in between that section where I didn't know what was going on, I didn't know whether I was still going all the way through the night because you do start to prepare yourself mentally for that push if you had to, if it had to come. And I wasn't expecting it that early on. And literally those 10 miles were just like, really a lot of demons came out to play in my head. It was just a difficult situation for the people I was with. I was very demoralized. But then when I got to the checkpoint, everything had gone back to how it should have been. And yeah, we just made a couple of tweaks and touch wood, it, it paid off in the end. And we, we were justified in our approach. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and you broke the record. Yes. Yeah. Which is something which is still weird to say. Um, I still refer to James as the record holder, <laughs> even though I am the record holder now. Um, and it, you know what? The level of support he gave me throughout was just uh, second to none. It's fantastic. Um, I had a couple of his mates sending me video messages saying like, good luck. And uh, they'd be in like a jacuzzi having a beer. And I was just like, oh, my God, I wish I was doing that. Um, you know what? I was doing something better there. I was running the Wales Coastal Path. And I think I said to James before I even set off, like, it's a win-win situation. Like, if I get the record, wicked. But if I don't, I still managed to run the Wales Coastal Path. And that was always the, 
the priority, complete the run and raise some good money for charity. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was, um, you know, an incredible effort. And, you know, again, you know, massive congratulations. I was, th Thank this you. is where I, I first saw, I was, um, I was actually um, in Wales when, when you did it. And I, um, I think my wife might've mentioned it was, it was on the news, we were in a hotel. And, um, and, and we, I just heard too late because um, her mum lives in uh, just outside Cardiff. So, and, and Panath, I know, having been down there you know, quite a few times and you know, we would definitely have whizzed down. So I was like, oh no, we've, we've, just, we've just missed that. Um, but, uh, but it was you know, fantastic to, to see. But, but oh, interesting okay. that you know, there's a number of stories where you know, someone breaks a record and, and the, the holder beforehand just really supportive. And that seems to be you know, quite a unique thing in the ultra running world. This, this sort of level of support, although there's great competitiveness as well, and you need that because that's what drives people on. There's also mm -hmm. great encouragement to each other, which, which I love. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, James in particular was fantastic, but it was the whole running community as a, as a whole as well. So as we went along the path, random people would just turn up who had love for running or just a love for Wales, and they'd cheer me on or they'd run, I don't know, 30, 40 miles with me. Um, just to help me one step forward. And I think that on the Slim Peninsula, which is the, just the top of Wales on the, the hook, as I call it, um, that is a beautiful, breathtaking place to run. But the people were, were what made that area so special to me. Like they would just throw themselves underneath a bus for me just to move forward. It was just unbelievable. They turn up in the most horrific of conditions and just put themselves next to me and just run all day long. Um, they knew the routes inside out, so they just knew when to push and when to hold off. And then when we got to the town of Poheli, um, people came out. And they, like, I didn't expect it. There was a lot of people there just clapping me on through the street. And that, I must have only been running through it for like five minutes. But I saw like loads and loads of people just cheering me on. Uh, there was a chap with a Welsh flag and he asked, us, like, asked me to stop to take a photo of him. And that's when it sort of hit home that, right, it, it was involved with my friends and family. And they were invested in it. But then all these random people who I'd never met were also invested in it. It was just a special, special place to run and special people up there. And like, like I said, the, the running community is something which is just fantastic. And don't get me wrong, there's certain areas which we could improve, but all in all, it's such a supportive community and it's just lovely to be part of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, I think that it's been a, a really tough year for for a lot of people for for different reasons um but i get a sense that, that there's been more and more people running in their own way their own distances whether it be 1k 5k 10k 100 miles whatever there's been lots of records broken um, people doing amazing things so right across the spectrum and and you know you hope that people do feel that there's that sense of of community um you know within that yeah, um, I, I think 2020 has been the year of your own, forging your own trail. It's coming up with your own challenges, stuff which you can work with certain parameters which you're set at the moment. And I think a lot of people have realised that. And I'm an events organiser myself, but it's been fantastic to see so many people going out there and doing their own thing for once, coming up with their own challenges, things that people have never done, going after all these fastest known times or records. Um, it's just, it's been 
in a way, yes, we've missed out on the events, but it's been an even more special year with just people creating their own challenges and going after it, which then to me shows a love for the sport because you're not going to be getting a medal at the end of it. You're just going to get the satisfaction of finishing that run, which is worth a lot more than, or a memory is a lot worth a lot more than any medal can give you, generally believe. Absolutely. Um, it was like, like, what was it? With all like, everything that's been going on, my brother lives up in London. And like, we haven't seen each other since January. But when every restriction lifted, he drove like uh, London to North Wales is not too far as the crow flies. But when you hit the country lanes, it's a long way. <laughs> and I think him and his wife ended up getting stuck in traffic. They were in the car for like nine hours just to come out and run a few days with me. And it was just nice to be able to run together as brothers because we've done so many challenges together over the year. Um, it's like he did Boston to Austin with me and then it was just fantastic to see him come out and run these couple of days with me. And you know what? It was reassuring to have your older brother there looking out for you as well. Like he, he's a couple, of, he's about eight years older than me. So he is going on a little bit, but no, he's a, he's a great runner. It's something which brought us closer together as brothers as well. It was just, yeah, cool. No, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, just, I mean, just finally, you know, you mentioned you, you've got your, you know, you run the Pegasus, um, the runs, and it, it looks amazing. You know, some beautiful routes that you've, you've got there. Um, I bet you're looking forward to, to getting, getting people going along them again. Yeah, I, massively. And I, I do hope a lot of people do continue to create their own challenges in 2021. Um, but I am looking forward to welcoming back runners to our races um it's, it's something which i get a personal kick from i love seeing people do things which they don't think are possible i love seeing their faces when they cross the finish line um i appreciate i can't really give them a hug at this moment but um in previous times i've loved just giving them a well you know a welcome home hug well done you've completed this run you've put it behind you it's something which i love seeing and hopefully there'll be more of that in 2021 we've got six races lined up but do you know what? Wales makes our job so much more easy because it's such a beautiful place to run in. And yes, we put on six events, but we are blessed with really good race directors who have managed to come up with some dream routes that showcase some fun, fantastic areas. And I just think Wales as a whole is a great place to run. Like you compare it to other places around the world and it is up there. I don't understand why it's more, not more recognised, really. We've got mountains, we've got the coast. We got a load of castles, like you know, we've got everything going on. And we got a dragon on our flag as well, which yeah. people tend to love. Um, it's just uh, yeah, it's lovely to see the amount of races that are popping up in Wales. And it's something which I think we all work together to showcase Wales as a place to run and visit in. It's something which I'm also passionate about. It's it's got a such an enormous amount to to offer. It's uh, you know, it's a magical place. Um, yeah, and I weather could be a little bit better. You know, I'm certainly wanting to come over and, and do do some of your runs, and it'd be great to meet and have a beer at some point. Um, I'd love to. in the not too distant future. Yeah. Um, I mean, just just finally, then, what what's uh, what's the next challenge? Then, what what have you got um, lined up? If it's not, a uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm in a little bit of um, so bad water next year for sure. That's happening. Um, obviously, everything's depending on whether we're allowed to travel internationally. Um, one of my other races, which is supposed to be in northern Minnesota in January, um, unfortunately, doesn't look like it's going to go ahead. 
Um, it's uh, unfortunately, I think COVID is struck again with that, which is fine. Um, we'll adapt and we'll figure something else out. But um, I'm going back to the canal races. So I do a lot of canal racing um, with the guys at Canal Race CIC. They're just um, a lovely little community. And they're 145 mile races from like Birmingham to London, Bristol to London, Liverpool to Leeds. It's called the Canal Slam. So I'll be going for that next year. And then I do have something special lined up, which is, um, uh, ah, sod it. All right. Um, yeah, it, um, it's the length of the UK. And it's going to be, it's a juggle attempt, I guess you'd call it, but it's all on trails. It's not going on the road route. It's going to add miles. It's going to try and as much as possible, make it a trail run. It's going to be also diverting up and down Ben Nevis, Scaffold Pike and Snowden. And then, yeah, come all the way down south. Um, that's the that's the, the big one, which I haven't actually announced yet. Um I've just got a little bit too excited and just pulled the trigger with you right there. <laughs> Sorry? Except you just have. <laughs> I just have, yes. So I better get out on my social media quite quickly. Um, um, I guess Caris yeah. has got her pen out making the dots already. Do you know what? She already has. She started about two months ago um, just putting together because when you finish a challenge, your mind goes straight to what's next. And after the Wales Coastal Path, I did spend a little time thinking about it. But I want to see more of this country and um, I want to see the whole of the UK. So I'm going to go from north to south, make it all on trails if I can. Um, there'll be sections where there's a road, but that's just unavoidable. And then go up and down the National Free Peaks as well as you go in. I, I, I'm unsure if it's been done before. It probably has. So I, I'd, I'd like to research that in more detail. But yeah, hopefully I can go after some record again or just sort of yeah go out there for the challenge and adventure. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I look forward to um, hearing and seeing the, the updates on that and may be able to join you on a, on a leg or so. You've had plenty of notice now, so you can come along. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No excuses. No excuses. Um, where, where can people find you and, and follow and um, see what you're up to and, and find out about your runs and the Pegasus? Yeah, uh, the Pegasus is um, it's just Pegasus Ultra Running. Uh, you put that into Google or onto Instagram, Twitter or Facebook, you'll find us. Um, and then me. Um, so I'm just Reese Jenkins. So you can find me on Facebook, but there's, there's no page. It's just my, my profile. And then you have my Instagram account, which is probably the most active. Um, and that is rjenko11. And you can just sort of see what yeah, I get up to on a day-to-day basis. It's quite boring. It's usually just a Strava run. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it doesn't have, happen on Strava. It never happens, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, that's probably the one where I'm most active. That's where I do uh, a lot of my uh, updates, should we say. But more often than not, I'm just focused on the training and sort of just going through that sort of side of things. Fantastic. No, that's great. Well, listen, um, it's been brilliant to listen to, to your stories. Um, and, and I know there's, there's going to be a bunch more. Um, I, I, I've used the term positive encourager, which comes from someone who's, been, who's mentored me. And he, he's probably the original positive encourager. But you're, you're certainly one of those and, and inspiring people. And uh, that's, that's just brilliant. So thank you. No, thank you. That's very sweet of you. And I appreciate and, you taking uh, the time to speak to me. And the beer will, will happen. 100%. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cheers, Reese. Cheers, mate.